Welcome back to the second season of the Be More Soccer Connection. To kick off the season, we have WBAL sportscaster Keith Mills. Keith has been reporting on Baltimore soccer since the 70s, starting his relationship with the Baltimore soccer community by reporting on the epic University of Baltimore versus Loyola College hometown battle on UB's road to the national championship. Check it out as Keith talks about the generations of Baltimore soccer, the rivalries, and the changes he has seen over time. Enjoy. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Allie, it is a pleasure. Long time. I'm, I'm glad we have reconnected. It's been a long time since we, we sat down and talked. A long time. High school. I, when you were in high school, yeah. For, unfortunately, I was out of high school, but uh, I followed your career when you were at McDonough and right on through Maryland and Loyola, so it's great to be here. Well, I appreciate you being here. How, um, how did you get into soccer? Because it wasn't originally a sport that you grew up playing. So as a, as a new, newscaster with sports, how did you Yeah, um, soccer, there were no youth leagues in soccer. I grew up, I grew up in northern Anne Arundel County. And football, baseball, and basketball were the sports that I played. When I got out of co- when I got out of high school, and I started to play uh, baseball in college, I got a job at the old News America newspaper. And the legendary sportscaster John Stedman uh, allowed me to go out and cover some local high school sports and some college sports. The first college soccer game I ever saw was Loyola and the University of Baltimore at Loyola College, and. I was well aware of the old Baltimore Major League because I would read the scores in the Sunday paper and think, man, he's, I recognized some of the names and knew some of the history. And then I went to this game, and Allie, it absolutely blew me away. There was 3,000 people. It was like Duke playing North Carolina in basketball, Army, Navy, and football. I'd never seen anything like it. And I was caught up in the whole tradition of the game once I learned a little bit about it. And then I learned that all the players – had grown up with each other. Uh, for Loyola, it was Nick Mangione and, uh, and, and, and John Huska and, and Ian Reed. And for UB, it was Pete Karinji and Charlie Myers and Dale Roth and Gino Panaki and Tommy Wall. And I learned later that all these guys grew up together in Holland Town or in that area. They played youth soccer against each other. And then they went to high school either at Calvert Hall or Curley or Dundalk or whatever, and they had these great rivalries that extended to college. And the coach at University of Baltimore was Dick Adell, who would later be inducted into the College Lacrosse Hall of Fame. And Jim Bullington was the coach at, uh, at, um, at Loyola College, and I got to know those two gentlemen. They welcomed me in, and I was blown away by the competition. I'd never seen anything like it. I mean, throw-ins were like treated like uh, you know a game-winning goal in the World Cup, man. It was unbelievable. Never, been in, never seen anything like it. Was it very physical, man? Very physical, very physical. I don't know who the referees were, but they let a lot of things go. And what I later learned, it was a turf war. It was, you know, it was the Coward Hall guys against the Curly guys, the Polly, and then Nick Mangione went to Polly. And there were just some of the great names in the history of college lacrosse or college soccer on the field that day that I later became aware of. Pete Karinji, one, one of my closest friends right now. I remember there was a play in this game, and I think it was Pete and, and, um, and the, one of the backs, it might have been Ian Reed for, uh, for, for Loyola. They did a 50-50 ball, and I mean, it ended up in a scrum of like four or five guys pushing and shoving, man. Uh, it was really interesting. Who won the game? Um, uh, that game, UB won. So in 1975, University of Baltimore won that game, went on to win the Division II National Championship. 
The next year, Loyola beat UB. I covered that same game, and then Loyola went on to win the Division II National Championship. So in back-to-back years, this core of Baltimore-area players delivered Baltimore college, collegiate national championships in back-to-back years. There has never been anything like it since. Wow. And do you think that had any uh, that, that, that was influenced at all by previous generations of soccer? Did you have any um, – once you – familiar with these guys did you have any connection to the the older guys that played yeah I learned a lot about it I grew up fascinated with my father worked at channel 13 for 40 years and he was really involved in sports broadcast Orioles baseball I read the paper all the time and I grew up reading about Joey Speck and Fritz Gardena and uh, Mr. Shore Gil Shore Holtz and all these legendary old timers they called them and they literally formed an old timers hall of fame most of the guys I learned later grew up in the Hollandtown area East Baltimore, and that was the hub of Baltimore soccer. That's how the, the Old Timers Soccer Association was formed? Oh, f- from what I understand, yeah, it was, it, was, it was formed to honor all the players from that area and their contribution to soccer, either playing or coaching. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So, um, you know, I'm sure, you've heard, uh, I'm sure you've heard the name, you know, Joey Speck. You know, there's a, there's, there's, there's a generational thing as to who has the best players, whether it's the fifth, 1950 guys with Fritz Gardena and Joey Speck and those guys, or the 70s guys. I guess Denny Witt was a late 60, early 70 guys that played for the U.S. national team. And then Pete Karinji and Charlie Myers and Nick Mangione and that generation of the 70s, all the way through the 80s with, you know, Timmy Whitman and Pete. P.J. Wakefield, uh, not P.J. Wakefield, but um, um, Chris Reef and all those guys that played at Calvert Hall, uh, Mr. Karpovich's sons, Billy and John. So I, I became fascinated listening, you know, you know, after a game, you go out you know, to a bar or whatever, and you sit there and listen to these guys just go back and forth over, over the generations. And I was fascinated with the history and the camaraderie of these guys that all grew up together competing against each other, who loved each other off the field, man. It was something I have never seen. The basketball community in Baltimore is really close, uh, particularly the East and West Baltimore communities that, you know, Muggsy Bogues, and you may have heard of those guys that went on to play in the NBA. The soccer community in Baltimore is just as close, if not closer, because of the generational ties, grandsons, uh, uh, grandfathers, fathers and sons that grew up with the game and coached it and played it. So... What it, can you tell us um, maybe about a specific family? I mean, look at Pete Kerenji, and he just was recently yeah. coaching his own son at UMBC. So um, tell us some of those generational stories. That's a great point. Yeah, Pete played at UB. His son, Petey, uh, you know, Petey the Third. Um, I'll give you an even better story. Petey's father had a bar uh, on the corner of, of uh, Conklin and Eastern Avenue, which is now Canton. It's, 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 it's Hollandtown. But back, you know, back... Back then, it was the hub of, of Baltimore soccer. So in the mid-'90s, uh, Mary Beth Mars and I were, at, were doing uh, news and sports at Channel 2, and we hosted a New Year's Eve party at Bohagers. It was a popular nightclub on the waterfront in Fells Point. And, you know, I'm driving out of there like 2 o'clock in the morning. I didn't want to go through town, so I came through Hollandtown. I'm going to take the tunnel back towards my house in northern Anne Arundel County by the airport. And I'm at the corner of Conklin and Eastern Avenue, and my car door gets ripped open. And I'm thinking, I said, hey, take whatever you want. Just, just you know, don't hurt me. 
And I get pulled out and taken into this bar. It was called Tommy's Lounge. Pete, Car- Pete Caringi's father owned the bar, and they were having a New Year's Eve party in there. Pete saw me at the light, told a couple of guys to go get me and bring me into the bar. <laughs> so I don't know where they took my car. I know one thing. I walked out at about 5.30 in the morning, and uh, it was one of the best nights I ever had. So that's when I learned a lot about uh, Baltimore area soccer and, and, and its traditions. But the Caringi family, the Mangione family, with um, – Obviously, Nick, uh, Dino, Sam, I mean, they all played at a high level of soccer. Nicky played professionally with the Blast. And uh, that, I don't want to say they're the first family of Baltimore soccer, but they're right up there. The Karinjis, um, uh, the Reef family, uh, Mr. Reef, Bernie Reef was an was a original member, I think, of the Old Timers Hall of Fame. His son, Chris, came through uh, Calvert Hall, played at a high level professionally. Um, and there's some great local ties, but the Mangione family might be uh, the, 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 they, they had, uh, I think Gina Mangione went to McDonough, came after you. She was a great high school player back in the uh, late 2000 um, and nines, nine or 10. Um, I got all these names going through my head right now, now but um, yeah, it was passed on generationally, but uh, I don't know if Pete, Pete's father, Tommy played soccer, but obviously Pete and, and young Petey did. And now what Petey did with the, uh, the club team they played on last year, they almost won the uh, Lamar Hunt Cup. I guess you were aware of that. So, oh, yeah. so that was good. So, yeah, there's always a father and a son out there somewhere that can drop some names, <laughs> you know. So you have this uh, – you're starting to build this relationship with them. Yeah, yeah. And you're talking about the, the tightness of this community. But can you talk a little bit about your impression of the soccer culture? Because um, America is, is criticized on the world stage as, you know, we're not really a soccer country, you know, in c- comparison to European countries and, and countries in South America where soccer is their life. But I, I think that in Baltimore, at least, um, like you said, generally, generationally in this culture that we've built, it is a little bit like that. So yes, indeed. Tell me what your impression of that is as someone who's not a soccer person coming in and seeing what Baltimore soccer culture That's a great question because the original Baltimore soccer culture I saw was blue collar, hard nosed, tough. Get into get you know win win the fifty fifty ball, man. Just grind it out, you know. Get physical. That was the guys I grew up or I I learned uh, the UB guys, the Loyola guys. You know those guys played hard nosed, tough soccer, and it filtered down into the eighties and into the mid nineties. And I think there was a cultural change when club soccer began to explode, and um, for some reason, the U.S. National Soccer Federation decided to, to emphasize the club ball instead of the high school game. And I think they passed a rule a couple of years ago where if you played academy soccer in D.C. United or the Bays or the you know, Pipeline or whatever academy it is, you couldn't play high school. And I just thought that was, was cutting their feet off. You know? um, I, I'll never forget when Steve, Steve Nichols was at McDonough, and now he's at Loyola. He said one of the few games they really looked forward to in terms of playing a tough, hard-nosed team was Calvert Hall and Curley because they had that old, blue-collar, grinded-out kind of physical kind of style that he said a lot of his kids that played at the academy level never saw anymore. It was a finesse game. It was um, – I, I, I'm, I'm a big critic of the U.S. Soccer Federation, even though I have nothing to do with it. I don't know any of the, play, the, the people that run it. I just think we've become we've, – we've, we've glamorized the sport to the point now where, you know, when you're eight years old, you have four sets of uniforms, you got bags, 
you know, you're playing three days a week and, and you're driving, you know, your, your family's driving, you know, 200 miles a weekend, spending $5,000 a weekend to play soccer. And I just think they're missing out on what's really important. And that's the, that's the, the, the competition at the local level where you grow up with these guys and girls and you know them and, and you have these traditional rivalries uh, based on where you grew up. And that is missing, I think, in our country today, big time from a soccer perspective. I think we've created a generation of prima donna soccer players. That's what I think. I know that's going to really anger a lot of people, but I think that's one of the reasons why we don't do well internationally. You know, you see these, these, these documentaries from kids that grew up in Brazil, you know, playing on the street, you know, and playing pickup games when they're 15, 16 years old. How many pickup games do you see kids play today? Rare. Rarely do you see a kid play a pickup game. So you see now that the game is, what you're saying is it's too polished. It's too, it's too standardized versus before it was go out, play with your friends. It was more hard-nosed. Absolutely. Now the sport, and soccer is a very expensive sport to participate in, too. Absolutely. It's happened to the basketball community. You could go years ago to any playground in Baltimore City, and you'd have, you'd have kids playing there from 7 o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock at night. And that's how they learn how to play. You got knocked down, you got up. Um, same with soccer. You know, kids were playing eight on eight at Herring Run. You know, ten on ten at at, at, at uh, you know Latrobe Park in South Baltimore, wherever the neighborhood was, and they're getting knocked down. They're you know they get up. You know now, it's everything's organized. If it's not organized, the kids aren't playing it, particularly at the young level. And I think at the 12, 13, 14 level, year old level, where you have to be taught hard fundamentals, how to play the game the right way, but also instinctively, you got to know how to handle the physicality of playing at the national and international level. And I'm not so sure a lot of our kids at the club level at the younger ages are getting that. And that's something I hear a lot um, from different coaches and parents that their, their children struggle with the physical side of the game. Well, you're going to get that internationally. You played internationally. I'm sure one of the first things you came to realize, even at the women's level, is, man, it's you're going to get an elbow here. Uh, and, you know, if you've got a 50-50 ball, you better, be, you better be physically ready to handle it, right? Forget 50-50, even if it's 60-40. 60-40. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm not advocating going out there and knocking some people over just to knock them over, but I go back to the days when I'm watching these UB games, and, man, you've got to be tough. You're, the primary talent is still the number one equalizer I think whatever the sport is around the world at the highest level you got to be able to play if you can't play you're not going to play at that level but you got to be tough you got to be able to handle adversity what happens when you get knocked down what happens when you lose a game Allie we don't allow our kids to lose anymore and I know parents that play on club teams if they lose a game or two they take them and move them to a team that's going to win all the games what is that teaching the kids that's teaching the kids that you you know it, it we don't allow our kids to fail. And I, I coached baseball for a long time, and if, if a kid strikes out, it's the coach's fault, it's the umpire's fault, it's never, a per, it's never their kid's responsibility that they fail. Hey, that's part of the game, man. You're going to fail. You're going to lose. Teach them how to handle it and teach them how to get better because of it. And I see that at the youth soccer level. Oh, my God. I coached my son's youth soccer team for, for six years, and it got to the point where I had to tell the parents, man, are you kidding me? You know, you expect your son to come out here, score three goals a game, and never lose? I mean, that's unrealistic. What do you teach them at home? You know, 
You've seen it. I've seen it. Uh, I'm not saying it filters down to the U.S. national soccer team, but I see a generation of kids who are soft when it comes to competing at the national and international level uh, uh, when it comes to playing tough, hard, no sports. So to maybe take a story that we can learn from, um, covering all of these athletes, it wasn't always sunshine and roses, I'm sure. Oh, no, no. You saw some of these athletes go through some really trying times and rise above it. So can you recall a story of maybe one of our local players Yeah, yeah. at any point that that suffered some kind of defeat or some personal trouble and then overcame it to be... Um, successful in their career? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, ooh, um, you know I'll, I'll just go through some guys that I, I – I, uh, Juliana Salenza, who I don't know ever came out of any – or I, I had to deal with any kind of personal trauma. But, you know, Jules's family was literally uh, uh, immigrants from Italy that didn't speak any English. And I met Jules when he was a sophomore at Archbishop Curley, and he was this little guy. I don't know if you ever saw him play. He was just tremendous. He was one of the best players to ever come out of the Baltimore area. And he had what I was talking about. He was tough as nails. I think when he was younger, he got, you know, he got looked, he got passed over by some teams because he was really small. And then he just became this phenomenal player. Again, refused to accept defeat, but when he did lose, he was able to handle it. I remember he was going out to play for the U.S. national team, and I saw him at the airport um, uh, by my house on Linthicum. I was flying somewhere. He was flying out to San Francisco, and his mother and father were there and didn't speak an ounce of English. And I'm trying to communicate with them, and I'm thinking to myself, man, I gained more respect for Jules then after I knew what family situation was like coming to this country, not speaking English. Jules grew up in that atmosphere, uh, went to Curly, played for Pep Perella, had a tremendous career, and went up the ladder because he was just a tough, rock-solid, talented kid who, who played as hard and, and on the playground in pickup games as he did against Calvert Hall in the A-Conference Championship. And maybe that's what you're talking about in regards to just overcoming some adversity and figuring out a way to get to that next level. And once you get there and challenge, you were able to handle it. You know, he was one of the best players at the, at the national club level because he didn't back down from anybody, man. And he was only five foot eight. I love Jules to this day. When he got inducted into the Old Timers Hall of Fame, he invited me to come as a, as a, as a as a guest, and I, I'll never forget that. That was one of the highlights of my professional career, being there when he got inducted into the Old Timers Hall of Fame, which you're a member of, by the way, too. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so, so you mentioned his parents are immigrants. Yeah, but, but yeah. Baltimore has a big culture of soccer coming out of, um, oh. uh, out of uh, immigrants coming in. You know, even old time, lots of Italians. Yep. Come on. <laughs> so, Greeks, Italians, it was all neighborhoods. You know, and it was, it was run initially, it was run a lot out of, of the church. Yep. My, my dad was coached by a nun. I was his soccer coach. Um, so are you familiar with, with that? Absolutely. Pete Karinji educated me about all of that. And as I mentioned, I grew up fascinated with the Baltimore Major Leagues, the Baltimore Major Soccer League. They played it on Sundays at Patterson Park and some other surrounding fields, but it was it was East Baltimore based and those kids that came out of those those great schools, St. Elizabeth, uh, uh, Our Lady of Fatima, all of those schools. I think your dad went to that school. Uh, uh, the Mangiones played for, La, uh, I think, uh, La Dolce and it was all neighborhood. 
I mean, and when they played, I, I finally got up to see them as I got older, and I'm like, whoa, man. It was like my reaction when UB. It was exactly why, the same watching University of, of Baltimore Loyola that day. Just just going after it. I mean, there was nothing. There was no championship on the line in terms of you know NCAA. There was no bragging rights. Calvert Hall loyal. This was neighborhood against neighborhood. The old timers had the lawn chairs out. You know, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Karinji and his gang. And and I mean, it was fascinating to see these gentlemen and ladies from the old country. You know, from Italy or Greece or wherever they came, Germany, wherever they came from, to sit in Patterson Park Day watching their kids play like it was the World Cup, man. I'll never forget it. Um, but that's what I'm talking about. That's how those guys got tough. I mean, I'm sure you played pickup games maybe with the boys when you were growing up, you know, and you got knocked around a little bit and toughened you up, you know? I can remember being, being in Dundalk with my dad at my grandmother's house, and right behind the house there was a, um, this giant uh, kind of tennis courts, basketball court area. And I would always be, you know, tugging at my dad's shirt. Come on, dad, let's start a pickup game. Come on, let's go start a pickup game. And we would just go get all the neighborhood kids yep. and go over to the, to the courts and just play a big game and use the fences for goals. <laughs> you used the fences for goals. You made up your own rules. You kept score the way you wanted to, but you played. You com- that's where you learn how to compete. That's what I did when I was growing up. You know, you learn how to compete playing pickup basketball with the best players in the area. And again, you get your, you know, you get your shot block, you get your butt handed to you. But you know what? You came back and you competed and it got you tough. I'm not saying those kids don't do that today. I just don't see it done anywhere else but the high school and club level where they're playing. If it's, again, if it's not organized, those kids aren't playing it. And I think that's a big, big mistake. Well, I think one thing is this, and I, and I tell parents this uh, when I'm working with their kids, is that you have to be, you have to love what you do. You have to be passionate. If you don't love it, you'll never be able to bring yourself to do what it's going to take to be successful in, any, in, in that sport or anything. You know, you have to really put all of what you have into it. And it's hard to put everything you have into something unless you... Absolutely. So I think that's one of the reasons that we've had so many great players come out of Baltimore because people just love the sport. They're so passionate about it. It's not about I'm going to go out and I need to do these drills that my coach gave me and I have to do it 10 minutes a day like my coach told me. It was just soccer, all soccer, all the time. It fascinates me that parents hire these skill coaches to work on that. Hey, hey, don't hurt my business. To work on – no, I'm not but, <laughs> but, but, but But because, because that's important. But what's also important is competing and competing against players as good as you or better that will toughen you up. Um, um, I was talking about this kid, Greg Houck, who plays now for Pete Karinji at UMBC. He loved to play. He was two years younger than my son, but he was on our team growing up. He just loved to play. And when Pete um, brought him over to UMBC, asked me about him. I said, Pete, you will never have a problem with him coming to practice on time and wanting to play hard. Loves to play. I tell our kids that I coached in baseball, if you're going to go play collegiate baseball, or I had a couple of kids got signed play professionally, you better love to play because it's a job in college, as you found out, and it's a job professionally, obviously, and you better love it. You want to get up at 5 a.m., lift weights and, and run, and then go to study hall, and then go to class, and then go to practice, and then go to more study hall, and then lift some more, then that, then collegiate sports is for you. If it's not, don't waste your time wasting the coach's time. 
because you know you've been there. That's their job. They get hired and fired because of athletes like you who they recruit. So if you don't like to play whatever the sport is, man, you're 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 behind the eight ball when you try to go to the next level because it is a job at the collegiate and professional level. And I don't know if a lot of parents are aware of that. I think some of the players might be aware of it because maybe some of their older peers that maybe have gone on have told them that. But parents have this this misconception that, you know, when my son or daughter is going to go to a college, uh, we're going to sit there and watch him or her score four goals a game or hit three home runs a game or score four touchdowns. It doesn't work that way because the next level of talent, as you know, gets higher and higher every level you go. And I know a lot of parents that have struggled dearly with their sons and daughters going to the next level that don't have the same success that they had in rec ball going to high school or high school going to college and they can't deal with it the kids can but the but the parents can't and that that's a, that's a major problem if you ask me so um taking it back to some of these these players that you've seen kind of come yeah through yeah more soccer can you tell us maybe one two three teams i mean you mentioned baltimore yeah and yeah Loyola, but university of baltimore and Loyola. but can you can you think of you know, two or three teams that really stick out in your mind as as special. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mr. Bill Karpovich, that coached at Calvert Hall, he opened his doors to me when I was a young re- reporter and allowed me in to watch practice, to sit in on his meetings. So I got really close to Coach Carp, uh, knew Billy and John real well. And, you know, you could take a couple of his teams. I know he had Pete Karinji's team when they were in high school were, were I think, uh, undefeated or close to it. He had a couple of undefeated teams when he was at Calvert Hall. Uh, uh, Timmy Whitman played on one. P.J. Wakefield, I think, played on one. They were really special. Uh, they had everything, man. They had toughness. They had skill. They had good coaching. They had great goalkeeping. And they were just rock solid. There was nothing you were going to do as an opponent that was going to beat them. Um, there was a player in Howard County named Daryl G., who played at Oakland Mills. Um, and this is, I mentioned to you that things changed a lot around town, around the state, when the Columbia Soccer Association started to really get some roots in, in the Columbia area and started developing some just spectacular players. Daryl G. was one of them. Daryl G. played with Pele when he was 18 years old, right out of high school, with the New York Cosmos. And he might have been the best player I've ever seen in the Baltimore area Baltimore City and the surrounding counties. I know I'm going to get some argument from the from the from the Baltimore area soccer community. I mean, honestly, as soon as you said Columbia, I said, "Oh no." I know, but you know how that was. Hey, Allie, when when uh, when when Oakland Mills and uh, and Bill Starr was coaching at Centennial, Don Shea was coaching at Oakland Mills. They 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 became a, a rival of Coward Hall and Curley in in the A conference because they were a threat to them. You know, we're developing these really good players out in Howard County. So Calvert Hall, Bill Karpovich scheduled Oakland Mills to come out. And Daryl G's team actually beat them one game. I think Oakland Mills ended up, uh, Calvert Hall ended up winning the series against them like three to two. But they were some great games. Two, 3,000 people poured out to Calvert Hall to watch these kids play. Daryl G was exceptional. Uh, so that team he played on in Oakland Mills was clearly one of the best of all time. And the Curly team um, that Jules played on, I, I, I wasn't old enough. Um, Mario Silipoti, who actually played on the Loyola team I was telling you about, um, with, with Nick Mangione and played at the University of Baltimore. Uh, Mario's now a referee. 
Uh, he was a great baseball player. I played against him in high school. His curly teams in the mid 1970s, or I hear spectacular. I didn't see. I didn't get a chance to see them. I was still in high school. But but Juliana Salenza's team, when he played, I guess in the late 90s, for Coach Pep Perella, just really really good. Um, there were probably three of the the best I can remember. Lock Raven had a team coached by Bill Sento, who went on who ended up going to Loyola College to coach, had a great team, won the state championship. Chris Lanahan and Marty Guala was the goalie. They were undefeated. They were really good. They were probably the four of the best teams I can remember that stood out. And then you see these you see these big teams kind of historically come through through Baltimore and this camaraderie that we talked about um, built through a Baltimore soccer history. And, you know, things start to get spread out a little bit. But then yeah. we see uh, a few years ago, Pete Kurinji take UMBC through the National Championship Series for college soccer and um, Baltimore just unite behind uh, them. Absolutely. But you were involved in that, right? Yeah, well, I covered that, you know, and I got, I got a chance to, 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 to get down there and watch a lot of their games. I think that started when, the, when, Nick Man- when um, Steve Nichols and Kevin Healy really built the Bays up into a club national powerhouse. Uh, they won multiple national championships. They dominated this region in terms of all age groups. I mean, you, I, um, I mean, you, you were along uh, late '90s, right when you went to high school, all the way through just about five or six years ago when things changed a little bit. When again they changed the rules about academy kids playing high school soccer, but you know Steve Brandon Caranta, Kevin Healy and that crew elevated the game of soccer in this area. I think. Um, in terms of skill, in terms of going out, bringing some really good kids into the Baltimore area. Um, most of them ended up at McDonough. You know, some ended up at Calvert Hall. They all seemed to play in the A conference. And it was just ridiculously good soccer. Well, a lot of those kids that played on that UMBC team were, were byproducts of, of that, um, that club group that Kevin and those guys had. They were local kids. Um, most of them were all MIAA conference kids. Um, Phil Saunders, the goalie, went to Perry Hall. You know, Petey went to Calvert Hall. Um, Gaetan Galtibano went to Mount St. Joe. Um, you know, the, the guys in the back um, went to McDonough. So they were all local kids. And that was a byproduct, I think, of what Kevin and, and Steve built at, at, with the base. And, um, and it was so refreshing to see uh, because no one ever thought that a, that a team from the Baltimore area, a mid-major team, could go and compete with the big boys, you know, the UCLA's, the Indiana's, the Maryland's. And they did, man, and they knocked on the door winning a national championship. I'm not so sure we'll ever see it again. I think it was the perfect storm, tough, hard-nosed kids that, had, that were, di- were kind of different than the rest of the club culture. Because they did grow up in Baltimore, and they did play a lot of pickup games, and they did play this tough, hard-nosed soccer growing up um, in, on the, uh, you know, in the rec programs of Baltimore. And they got great coaching from Stevie, from Kevin, and then from Pete and, 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 um, and Anthony Adams at, at UMBC. And uh, it did not surprise me one bit when those guys made a great national championship run because they had played against the same players at the club level and had beaten them um, in every age group, you know. So I don't know if that answered your question, but and did you talk to Peter? Oh, absolutely. What it was like to um, coach his son. Oh, a- absolutely. That team. I mean, to have this have this amazing team, and then yeah, have his son be a part of it. Pete downplayed that a lot. 
because I think in any great coach's mind, your son, if he plays for you, is no different than the rest of the guys on the team. They're all your sons or your daughters if you're coaching a women's team. You look at it that way. That's why Pete's had so much success. He, he brings those kids in. But, yeah, I mean, Petey ended up being one of the leading scorers in the country. And, and, but Petey fit right in with everybody else. You know, he wasn't a, a pound-your-chest, say-look-at-me guy because I'm the coach's son. You know, he grew up in that culture. I remember when Pete had his uh, soccer camp at Essex Community College, and, and Jules and all those kids were tiny, and they were coming up to play in it. So it was Petey. Petey was like four or five years old, running around out there, playing with the older kids, learning the skills, but also learning how to be tough. But you could tell there was a glow in Pete, Big Pete's eyes when Petey would do well. You know, he, Petey would never say, hey, that's my boy. But deep down, he was thinking, you know, that's my boy. Pete runs a soccer camp in Ocean City all the time. And I haven't been down there in a while because I bought a house in Florida, so I spend my time now in Florida. But... I would go down to his camp in Ocean City every summer. And we would always go out at, at night, hang out with all the guys that were coming down to work to camp. And just to sit there and listen to some of the stories he would tell, sharing it with some of the guys that he was coaching, and having little Petey sitting off to the side, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, always listening in, always taking it all in. So he grew up in that culture like Pete did with the old-timers that taught him. And, you know, you mentioned people coming over from the old country. You know, the people that came – to Baltimore from the old company, the country, Scardinas, Despecas. Um, they, they grew up on World Cup Italian soccer, Germany, Brazil, watching Pele. So they grew up watching the greatest soccer in the world um, at the highest level. And then when they came over here, they tried to recreate that in their own little communities, and they did a good job of it. And now I'm not so sure you see that, but for that one fleeting moment, with UMBC making that national championship run, that's what we saw. We saw a group of kids whose parents, grandparents were soccer fanatics, and they manifested that into one of the great runs we'll ever see in local soccer. No doubt about it. So a lot of Baltimore soccer history obviously comes from men's soccer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and women's soccer didn't really come on until later. So, But you were kind of, as in your position, you could kind of see it develop, and you were following along with the relevant sports at the time. And, and when did you see women's soccer really come on, and, and, and what was that change that you Yeah, that you, uh, you absolutely. A huge change was 1989 when the State Athletic Commission for public schools created the first girls' state championships around the state. And it, it changed dramatically what we were going to see later on in girls' soccer. You know, Baltimore, again, had a, had a, had a small but talented core of private school players, you know, from Archbishop Keogh and, and, um, and Mount DeSales and McDonough and uh, Maryvale and some of the – there was a young lady by the name of Rosemary Kosorek that played in 1988 for Mercy. She was on the U.S. Net women's basketball team. She was only about five foot seven, but she was one of the best soccer players to ever play in Maryland. And she was just flat out tough, just like you were, just nonstop. She was one of the first soccer players I can remember that kind of reaped the benefits of the of the women's national team getting more exposure, but also at the state level now getting more exposure for state championships. So three to four years later in the early 90s, you know, there were more young girls playing soccer at the, at the uh, elementary school level, at the middle school level, because they saw 
a big carrot when he got to high school, a state championship. That's a big deal. So by the time the mid-90s came around, I think Laurie Schwartz got out of McDonough, 93 or 94. She was the first real superstar player I remember around here. Um, you came along not long after that, um, um, and there were some other players in between, but there weren't many that went to the national level. But I don't think it happens as quick as it did if we don't create a state championship. And, and there were only – a lot of the state weren't, weren't even involved in it. Western Maryland didn't have teams that played in it. Some of the Eastern Shore didn't. It was Montgomery County, PG County, Baltimore County definitely, Howard, Anne Arundel. And then as it got more popular – more girls began, to, began playing at the youth level. Rec's, recreation programs at the youth level started developing, uh, you know, girls' teams. And the next thing you know, you know, the Bay started a girls' program. Uh, some of the other – I know uh, Bethesda started a girls' program in Montgomery County. And all of a sudden, the girls' program started to explode. And we saw these great players coming out of every inch of the state who were tough, competitive um, love to play. You mentioned passion. You had it. Laurie had it. Uh, some girls I saw, um, Betsy Given, who came out of Broadneck High School, who played lacrosse and soccer at Loyola College. She was before you. She was in the um, early 90s. She was a spectacular athlete. She played on one of the first state championship teams ever at Broadneck High School. And um, so she benefited from that exposure. But it's all about exposure. And then, of course, when the U.S. national team, you know, in the, in the late 90s got some national attention, ESPN started putting their games on. They had that famous game at the Rose Bowl. Uh, I guess you remember watching that game where, you know, Brandy Chastain scores the winning penalty shot, takes her top off, and the next thing you know, the women's soccer program is on the front cover of Sports Illustrated. So all these younger girls now, 9, 10, or 11, who are starting to play are saying, man, I can do that one day. And here we are now, Women's World Cup champs. You've gone on to play at a high level. You're now making a career out of, out of developing young soccer players, and it's happening all over the country. And as a, as a father of a daughter, I always tell people, parents that don't have daughters, that say, well, why, why do women get all the attention? I say, you obviously don't have a daughter. If you did and you saw the maturation that sports brings, the, the, um, the overall development of a young lady from the time they're 8 to 9 to 10 till they get out of high school is extraordinary because of athletics. Title IX, for all the critics, has been one of the great things in our society because what it's done for women's collegiate athletics, my opinion. So uh, in Baltimore specifically, we talked a yeah. lot about the culture of uh, that it gets passed on from generation to generation. Um, and, and my father coached me, right? Yep. And so can you, can you talk a little bit about how, how that generation to generation, in the conjunction with the explosion of women's soccer, how that helped um, some of these players coming out of Baltimore and the Maryland area? Yeah, no, no question about it. Again, it was about exposure, you know, but more... more uh, Slowly, there were club teams formed at the 10, 12, 14-year-old age. I think back in the mid-'90s, there were only kind of high school club teams that were formed. But slowly, you know, interested fathers like yourself or, or men – yeah, like Charlie Myers, whose, whose daughter played at a very high level. Charlie played in that great University of Baltimore team. Or, or men and women that coached 
or, or, or played at the collegiate level that wanted to keep their hand in the game, uh, might not have had kids yet, but wanted to coach. They started forming some club teams, and the coaching at the youth level was much better, better than, than just me as a father going out and throwing a ball out and saying, hey, run around, kick it, and then run after it and kick it again. You know, practices became organized. The, the, the games became much more competitive. And the more girls started playing, the more better athletes that started playing. They got better coaching. And I saw in the mid-90s a major, major turn in regards to the number of talented players in the Baltimore area. I mean, you could go to any private, you know, you went to McDonough. That was the start, I think, of their big run that they still, that they still have. You know, you played for Coach Boylan. Um, they won some championships. I and mean, they won four or five in the last five or six years. Your, your, your sister, I think, played on one. I mean, your sister is one of the great players to ever come out of Baltimore. Um, but, you know, where would she have been if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for Laurie, if it wasn't for the men and women who were coaching the teams then that put the time in and knew what they were doing? It wasn't just a parent rolling the ball out that knew nothing about soccer. It was really a group of young men and women that were going into their clubs and the high schools, and they were changing the way the game was being taught, changing the way it was being played. So you could compete with some of these other other states that were that were much more um, further advanced in regards to their soccer evolution from a girl's standpoint. But around here, um, it still doesn't get the attention that the guys get, I think. But but girl sports in general, soccer, one of them, lacrosse, basketball. Uh, Taylor Cummings, you know Taylor. Taylor went to McDonough, and she might be, no disrespect, <laughs> the best high school female athlete I've ever seen. She was the Twarton Award winner at University of Maryland. She's the one who played multiple sports. Yeah, she played soccer, basketball, and, and lacrosse at McDonough. And she went on to play multiple sports in college? She, she played lacrosse at college, but she was a two-time national player of the year in, in lacrosse. She could have played college soccer, and she could have played college basketball, but she just focused on lacrosse. I went to see her play. You know, she may have played with your sister. When did your sister get out? In 14? 13 or 14? She's a sophomore in college now. She may have crossed paths with her maybe one year at McDonough. And I mean to tell you, I'm, I'm watching these girls play, and I'm blown away by one the 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 um, coaching that was going on and how the girls were well schooled and just the fundamentals the, the 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 strategy of the game the X's and O's so to speak and just the skill level the skill level was just it blew me away um, it probably had been a while since I had seen the the, the women's game um, at that level the high school level McDonough I think played um, they were playing maybe Manchester Valley a really good team from Carroll County. And it was a very high level. I talked to the coaches later. There's probably a dozen Division I players on the field that day. And Taylor was just an extraordinary player. She played center halfback, distributing the ball, doing everything, played point guard in basketball, played feeder in lacrosse. She was just a spectacular athlete. Yet there, were a lot, there were a lot of Taylor Cummings out there. And 20 years ago, I didn't see that. You know, I saw Laurie, and I saw some other girls, and I saw a big gap in talent. But the gap has closed, and now there are some spectacular women, young women's athletes playing high school sports in our society today. Title IX is one reason for it. Um, 
uh, the exposure that the U.S. women's national team's gotten, all the college lacrosse we see on TV now, but also that commitment that some, some men and women made back in the day 20 years ago to develop the girls' high school soccer game. So by the time you got there in the, in the late 90s, early 2000s, it was changing to the point where, oh, man, it became a recruiter's paradise to come to Baltimore. And I'm, I, the, the, the girls that you graduated with, the girl that uh, played at St. Mary's that went to Virginia, um, Julie, uh, the Napatolano girl I was telling you about that went to Mount Hebron, spectacular players, great athletes, multi-sport athletes, and that was fun to watch. And my daughter played soccer at a, at a very young age. She was not very good, but – um, I did see a level of watching her teams play around the area. I just saw a level of soccer, and this is the mid-2000s, that is blowing me away. Girls that were 9, 10, 12 years old with extraordinary skill, you know. So how do you feel that the Baltimore soccer community responded to that, um, this kind of new wave of women's soccer coming through? I would hope they responded with, with open arms and applause and, and, hey, this is fantastic. Why, why, why wouldn't they? I... I I, I, I'm blown away when I, I when young men or women are doing something productive, whatever it is, sports. You, know, you join the band. Whenever I talk to kids, I talk to kids probably once every two weeks in high schools around the area about careers. You know, I, first thing I ask them is, you know, what? Do you, how many of you guys play sports? Hands go up. How many of you are involved with the choir or singing your church choir? Hands go up. How many of you uh, like to play music? You know, whether you form in your own band, play in a church uh, band, play in a high school band, hands go up. How many of you like to draw or are interested in art? Hands go up. How many of you like to write, write your own stories, blogs? Hands go up. Probably 100%, Allie, of a class of 40 kids. So I say, okay, so how do you get, to, how do you get from here to what you want to do when you're either out of college and you want to uh, focus on a career? How are you going to get there? And the bottom line is being taught at a very young age fundamentally to do what you need to do, whether it's playing guitar or playing striker in soccer or goalie in lacrosse, whatever it is, you need to learn the fundamentals. And now we've got coaching, but it, it boggles my mind when kids that are achieving high success are, are either, it, it's not flaunted. You know, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's jealous or envious from another side of, of society who doesn't think it's good that young girls are playing sports or doesn't think it's good that, that, that young girls want to, want to play in the band or whatever. That's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard of. If that's what you want to do and you have passion for it, go for it. Go for it. I don't see that as being a problem in the athletic culture today, the athletic communities. Um, I still get out and watch some high school games, not as much as I used to. The problem today with parents is placing too much expectations. It's not so much the culture, it's the parental involvement, it's the adults um, 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 hurting the games for the kids. The kids want to play. You wanted to play when you were a kid and just go out and play. Now we place all these, these, these uh, guidelines on them. Well, you got to play for this club team, or you got to go to this camp, or you got to hire this, uh, no disrespect, you got to hire this batting coach or or you got to have this pitching coach in the offseason or you got to go to this showcase tournament because that's where the college coaches are going now the college coaches aren't going to showcase tournament when you're 10 and 12 years old they're not doing it but we have created this culture where the parents think they are and they're dropping extraordinarily amount of money to do it it's very counterproductive instead of that 
putting the constant pressure on the kids to win, win, win. Achieve, achieve, achieve. What we need to be doing is teaching the kids how to play, how to be a good teammate, how to be a responsible, disciplined athlete, how to be accountable for when you do well and don't do well, and and how to accept coaching. And man, that does not happen as much as it should in our society today. That's the cultural part of high school athletics that I detest. And I was a part of it when I was coaching baseball at Cardinal Gibbons. I had to sit down with our parents and I had to say, you know what? 75% of our players your sons are not going to play college baseball because they're not good enough. But they love playing high school baseball, and they love playing baseball, so let them do it. Back off. Take the expectations away. You don't want to pound your chest and say, look at my son. He's an all-metro player when he's not. Okay? Let him play. Who knows what might happen? And our kids, you know, for whatever reason, the kids, the kids ended up playing and having fun. You know, we had a lot of success, but man, I'll tell you what, you see it. You see it every day. The parental influence that parents have on their kids today for their kids to never fail is mind boggling to me. That's a cultural problem in our athletic society today. We see Pete Karinji, when I interviewed him, he talked about how his father would come to the games, and after the game, he would just say, hey, let's go get a pizza. He, he didn't talk about the game with him. He didn't put pressure on him. It was all Pete. Pete just wanted to play, and he knew his father supported him, and that's all he needed. Absolutely. And I can say from, from my perspective with, with my own father, you know, I felt this my dad coached me. You know, he didn't really give me any special attention um, to the other kids on the team, and, and I just loved to play. And there was, I didn't feel any pressure. If anything, I was pressuring my dad to come play with me. In the yeah, summer, yeah, you know? yeah. It never came from him. And that's one of the things I try to talk to parents about, that, that if you're, you, your only job is to provide your child with the opportunity. And it's from there that, and, and encourage them, focus on, you know, be a hard worker, you know, be kind to your teammates, be respectful of the coaches. It's good to encourage good values in the kids, you know, but, but mainly the parent's job is to give them the opportunity. And from there, it's the child's decision if they're going to take advantage of it or not. And there's nothing where you can do about it. Force all you want, but you can't force someone to love something. And that's the only way they'll be successful in sports. You need to write that down. You need to put that on some, 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 some video and audio, and you need to send that out, and parents need to hear that because that is the, one of the best uh, um, explanations of, the, of this scenario that I've heard. You're exactly right. Pete's father did that. And Pete, even though he's coached at the highest level in collegiate sports and has had tremendous success, was a great player. He doesn't coach that. He doesn't place pressure on his players. He allows those guys to play. You win, you win. But he instills in them an unbelievable camaraderie amongst each other. And fundamentally, those guys know what they have to do. And he, he, he brings out their passion in the game. Your dad brought out your passion in the game, it sounded like, but you had it. To start with, all those kids that played on Pete's team love to play soccer. Love it. They play, Pete would tell me after practice, they go out and they play pickup. Just, just kick the ball around because they love to play. They love being with each other. Until we take the, the we, we stop hamstringing our kids on, on achieving, on, on going to the next level and just allowing them to manifest the passion and the love, their love of the game. 
I think we're going to be treading water athletically in our country. Listen, baseball, the world has already passed the United States baseball players by. You know, the, the, the Japan, uh, the Caribbean countries, you know, it, it, it is what it is. Um, soccer, I don't know if we'll ever be able to compete with, with, with the Italys and the Brazils and the Frances and the Germanys at the international level. I just don't see it. I think the main thing is that these kids coming from these other countries are growing up in a culture where life is soccer. And that's what I grew up with. Yeah. With my dad in, in that, that Baltimore soccer community. Like, we just love it. My dad never said anything to me about, about, um, about you know, trying to explain the game or why I should like it. It, it just exuded off of him. And I was a daddy's girl, you know, so, and I was like, I loved it. I think at first just because my dad loved it. Yeah, absolutely. I developed my own love for the game. But I think it's important in putting the kids in, in, um, in a culture that teaches them to love what they're doing. And, and that's why these other countries are so successful. No question about because it. Because it's ingrained in them. It's ingrained in them at a very young age that the passion to play, the desire to play is the most important thing. And in this country, you know, if you don't have a, if you don't have three sets of uniforms and a bag, or in baseball, if you don't have three bats and the, you know, the the the, the state of the art batting gloves, well, then you're just not going to play. And that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, you know why? Why Baltimore area basketball for so long has been at the top of the, and, and not just in, in the state, in the country, is because those kids played every day in the summertime at the Dome down at Madison Square, and they just played 12 hours a day. And they learned how to play. They learned how to get tough. And if you're talented enough, that passion and toughness is going to take you to the highest level. You know, it did you. It did, it did uh, Laurie. And look at all the, 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 the kids. You know, Santino Caranta. You know, Santino loved to play. You know, was incredibly talented. And uh, he made a nice run. You know, he got a lot of U.S. national team time. And um, I know he made a lot of people proud around here. I mean, that was Pete's. I mean, Pete and the Carantos, Karinjis and the Carantos are like brothers. And man, that was that was fun to watch. Um, you know, what the Blast has done around here. I know it's indoor soccer, but they've achieved an enormous amount of success because Kevin Healy took what he learned from Jim Bullington at Loyola, Bill Karpovich at Calvert Hall, and he brought it to the Blast. Find guys that love to play and love each other. And that's a good combination. Sounds simple. They're making a big move. Moving out to Towson, CQ Arena. Uh, Ed Hale, who's been a great uh, ally of mine over the years, and Kevin, obviously. Um, I, you know, I, they, had a, they had a problem with the arena in terms of some legality, so Ed moved it out to Towson. I think it's a great move. There's a lot of fans out there. It's a smaller arena, so it's going to be more of a, you know, kind of a, um, an intimate kind of setting. But, hey, you know, the Blast has been as, ex as an extension of, um, of Baltimore soccer since it's been – They've been playing 30 years ago. They've always had a bunch of local kids playing for them. You see that Baltimore soccer has, has gravitated a little bit out of the city towards the county. You know, as some of these guys have aged up and moved out within, with their families. That's a great point. You know, and I think that this move to Towson is going to be huge. It puts them right in the middle of kind of the new home base for Baltimore soccer. That's a great point. You know, that's, that's a really good point because as these guys and women – Started raising families. They moved out to the, to the suburbs. Anne Arundel County, Allie, is a huge soccer area. 
Oh, my goodness, it's fantastic down there. I mean, they've got some really good high school, public school teams that win, that compete for state championships. The girls' programs in Anne Arundel County are spectacular. They devote a lot of resources and a lot of time to girls' sports both there and in Howard County and in Carroll County. And so I it's, it's, it's you, blossomed. If you look at who, who started those different soccer organizations who really got them up and running, I wonder if they – from Baltimore, <laughs> just moved out into those areas and got it going wherever they moved to. Yeah, if they're not from Baltimore per se, they're they're you know their grandfathers or grandmothers might have been. You know, they all grew up in that you know that little network of Hollandtown on the east side, uh, over by and then up by Curly, you know, the Bel Air Road corridor, and then if you go over to the west side, it's a Security Boulevard corridor, Catonsville, um, you know, all the the, the Beltway Rim areas. Um, very hotbeds of soccer. But that's a great point because now you look at around the state and whenever the public schools championships are, are being decided, um, they're, they're, we're talking Western Maryland, you know, Middletown from Frederick to um, you know, Parkside High School from Salisbury. They're all competing at the, at the state level. I think that's fantastic. I mean, college coaches are coming here now probably more than they ever have, don't you think, mm-hmm. to recruit boys and girls. I think it's fantastic. So to, to wrap it up, yeah. tell me your favorite, one of your favorite soccer memories. Ah, my, oh, my favorite soccer memory to this day is the UB Loyola game I covered back in the mid-1970s, you know, 45 years ago. I will never, I can remember, I can't remember what I wore to work yesterday, but I can remember that day like it was yesterday. Um, just the, the, the almost insane <laughs> reaction from the crowd over simple things like like again like a 50 50 ball being taken away or a throw in a good throw in or a bad call from an official and just the toughness of the players and getting to know them later on that will be number one um number two will probably be um this is when, when bill karpovich was um coaching uh at at calvert hall they played curly in a game at calvert hall and again it was 15,000, 2,000 fans, and it was one of those just knock-down, drag-out, nothing-nothing games until like the last 30 seconds, and Calvert Hall won on like a 30-foot bomb from the right right corner to the opposite goal that you like. I, don't, I can't remember who, who scored the goal, but like, man, that's pretty impressive. But I would say those two right now. And that really kind of opened those – Karpovich and, and those, those guys really opened the door. They opened. For you to, to get your foot into the soccer community and really meet people. And Absolutely. Oh, no question. And some of those guys now. They took you right in. They, they, they allowed me to come in. Uh, Dick Adele, who was the coach at UB, was a lacrosse guy who actually coached soccer. Um, and he says to this, Dick Adele uh, says that he, he coached. Uh, Maryland, North Carolina, Maryland, Duke, and lacrosse. He coached the men's lacrosse team at Army, so he played Navy every year. He said the UB-Loyola rivalry was the most intense that he had ever been a part of, and that includes Army-Navy. That's unbelievable that these these guys that grew up literally two, three blocks from each other or two, three miles from each other would come together for a couple of years and play these knockdown dragouts. But, yeah, I will always appreciate um, Bill Sento, Mr. Carp, um, Harley Russ, who was the coach at Patterson that time. Oh, my God. Sonny Askew and Gino Panaki and all the guys that he had. Sonny Askew is one of the two or three greatest players that ever play in Baltimore. Um, so I will forever be grateful for those guys opening their doors to me. Always. No doubt about it. 
Awesome. Well, thanks thank so you. for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Anytime. We have to do this again. Absolutely. And we got to dig up some footage from that game. We got to. We tried. There's a lot of pictures. Uh, Coach Cringe, he's got a lot of pictures. I know on the website there's a University of Baltimore soccer website that's got a lot of pictures of those games and some of the guys that played. Charlie Myers, I think, is on there. And, uh, and oh, let me tell you, I see those guys kicking around town, and, uh, and I, they still come up. And they'll still talk about that game like it was yesterday, man. It's it's unbelievable. Oh man, if only we had the same kind of technology then that we do. How about that? You know, but it probably wouldn't be the same. Yeah. Because now all the kids are so focused on the phone and the computer that they're not going outside and doing what you did. <laughs> Even when you were going to high school, this was the phones were not were not that relevant. Now. No, I didn't get a I didn't get a phone until I was driving and it was like a brick <laughs> it was like this long right? it was like the, the, the size of the studio um that's a big part of it i mean kids today have so many other things that i that i love when the kids that really do have passion to play you know uh my coach once told me what are you doing when the coach isn't watching you know it's always good it's always you know everybody's trying to press the coach when you're there at practice you know but what are you doing when he or she's not watching are you playing are you are you you know, watching the game, are you lifting maybe, doing some, some conditioning, but mostly are you playing? Now, I know it's hard to play baseball when you don't have three or four yeah. guys, but you can get four or five people to go out and play a little bit of soccer, or eight to ten. It's funny you say you know? that because I, um, I grew up on this quote by Karen Gabbard, champion is someone who trains when no one is watching. And so when I originally started uh, my business, I named it Champion Soccer Training. That's and fantastic. I, and that's why. A champion is someone who trains when no one is watching. Absolutely. And she's down at Navy, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's been down there for years, followed her. Uh, listen, we've got, I mean, Karen, you got uh, the, the Maryland uh, men down there, and they've done a great job. So this is the hotbed, man, of, of soccer. You know that. National club teams winning championships year after year after year. The uh, Christo Ray guys from, uh, you know, the club team that young Petey Karinji played on that made a run at the uh, the Open Cup this year. That's extraordinary. And all those guys all played for Coach Karinji at UNBC a couple of years ago. So, And they're still playing at 26, 27, 28 years old because they love to play. You know, I wish there could be some, some – are there amateur leagues for women your age now in the area? Yes, we do. We, I, I've been playing for um, ASA Charge. We had a team that actually folded after last year, but I was – Thinking about getting in touch with those Christos guys. So yes. Put up a women's team together. They should. The championship next year. I'll play. My sister will play. We got a great group in the Baltimore area. Oh, I can imagine. Up. I bet there's a lot of kids from your age group down that, man, you could feel a heck of a team. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. You can't. Well, it would be just like the men. Oh, yeah. You know, just tough, hard-nosed, rock-solid Baltimore kids. There is nothing. I mean this. In Philly, yeah, maybe Boston, but Baltimore toughness. If it's manifested and it's brought out, like you say, and the passion's allowed to, to come to the surface, man, those kids are, are, oof, they're tough in any sport. You know, I played on a national championship baseball team when I was 16. We had kids from all over the area, St. Joe, Calvert Hall, um, Loyola, a bunch of kids from maybe Brooklyn Park, and man, these kids, you, you, were, you were not going to beat us. It didn't matter. I don't care if I don't care who you threw or what you did. We were not going to lose. And that's, I'm sure that's where the way it was with you guys, you know? Absolutely. And that builds toughness. I take those lessons I learned then today. My kid, my daughter just had a baby. My son just moved to Dallas. And, you know, we talk all the time about, about developing toughness, you know? 
life's not going to be a piece of cake. You know, you got to, you got to, how are you going to handle the, the, the winding roads? You know, you get that through athletics, mm -hmm. I think. Absolutely. You know, anyway, well, enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Legendary sportscaster Keith Mills giving his impressions on Baltimore soccer. How interesting to hear the perspective of someone who actually wasn't a player, but was there to witness it all. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Keith, and I hope you all enjoyed it. We'll see you next week.